Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 94 of Carol Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. My onstage Carol Pop conversation with the multi-talented two-time Oscar nominee, Michael Shannon, is almost here. It's on Monday, July 31st at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Some general admission seated tickets are still available. Go to evansonspace.com to get them. Our Carol Pop guest this week is saxophonist, keyboard player, and producer Steve Berlin. His trademark baritone sax has been a driving force on Los Lobos' albums since he joined that East L.A. band in the early 1980s. Before that, he was in the Blasters. The first time he ever played a baritone sax was on one of the Blasters' most celebrated tracks. Aside from being a gifted musician, Berlin is a no-holds-barred storyteller who calls him as he sees him. He offers so many great stories and insights that this Carol Pop conversation is a two-parter. In this, part one, he takes us inside Los Lobos' sometimes messy creative process. How do songwriters David Hidalgo, Louis Perez, and Cesar Rosas present their songs to the band? How's that changed over the many years they've been together? How do the players whip the songs into shape? Should we expect Los Lobos' first album of original material since 2015 anytime soon? Berlin also looks back at those peak times in the studio and on stage. We go back to Berlin's early years in Philadelphia, what instruments he played first, and how that city's music shaped him. Why did he move to Los Angeles? What the hell happened with Greg Allman? What happened when he had to choose between Los Lobos and the Blasters going in actual different directions? How did watching a producer make terrible decisions on a project to help Berlin's own producing career? How did Berlin and T-Bone Burnett wind up co-producing Los Lobos' 1983 EP and A Time to Dance in the 1984 album How Will the Wolf Survive? What happened between Berlin and Burnett on the follow-up album By the Light of the Moon that resulted in Berlin being moved aside to work instead on some B-movie soundtrack? Los Lobos was recording the songs for that project at the same time, but didn't expect much to come of it. It was called La Bamba. All that and much more in part one of this Carol Pop conversation with Steve Berlin. You grew up in Philadelphia. Um, how much did that, you know, being in Philadelphia and that music scene sort of shape who you were as a musician? I think it, it really profoundly affected me just because. So Philly is a, is a town of musicians. Like it's sort of like, I guess, like Austin or Nashville or Memphis in a way that, you know, like there's a, the culture of playing and players is extremely high. Like the bar is set high. So if you're going to enter the, the arena, you know, you can't come with anything other than, you know, the best you could possibly do. And among the people that I grew up playing with, you know, there was a premium placed on just being ready, like ready for anything. Like you, there are no excuses, no whining, you know, you just had to be like, um, like ready to go, no matter what was happening. In many cases, almost all, every case, like the youngest guy in the, in the band of the people I was playing with or one of the youngest. So, you know, I got to learn around guys who had been playing for years and who were, you know, actual grownups when I was certainly not a grown up, I feel like I learned a lot of good, positive traits, you know, things to that ethos of, of being prepared and, and not whining and, and, you know, just being ready to go all the time was served me well. So when I came to California and met the guy, you know, the Lobos and even the blasters, like I didn't come from the culture that I came from in Philly was more R and B like not R and B in the modern, not like classic R and B, like right. what I came to be in the blasters, but like, you know, 
black music book more than more often than not. So uh, was it like was like that Philly soul thing. I mean, yeah, Philly soul and some, you know, like a variant on Philly soul, like kind of like our version of it. Uh, so yeah, it was less, it, it certainly had not a lot to do with, um, you know, forties and fifties R and B that I then came to be a huge part of in, in California, but it was still, you know, great training and you, you know, you had to learn your craft and again, be ready for anything. So when I, came to California and I started hanging out with the, the blasters and then Lobos, it was like, my mind was open. Like I was, I didn't define myself as a, you know, whatever you would call it, like a jazz musician or a rock musician. I was a musician and I was ready to learn. And, uh, once again, I was very lucky to be around, you know, the best teachers that I could possibly have imagined, like, you know, just being around Lee Allen every day for a couple of years, like literally the best saxophone player in the world was my fucking roommate for two years. So I've always been lucky and blessed beyond words to have great teachers when, uh, when it was time to learn. And you started off on flute. Very, very young. I started playing flute and harmonica basically when I was in, uh, high school, you know, my, my first professional instrument was a soprano sax. I was playing with a band of Philly and we we're, I don't know what the hell you'd call it. I guess jazz rock, um, something like that. But I would, my, I was exclusively playing soprano sax with uh, a primitive pickup running through an amplifier. So it was kind of like now it would be, you know, I think probably incredibly hip, but back then that was my idea, like to get this sort of bizarre electric saxophone sound, um, and that was my axe. That was all I played. And, you know, even when I moved to California, my first band in LA was that I was still just playing soprano sax through an amp with a pickups and, you know, like kind of unusual sounds. And then uh, one day that band said, you know, if you don't show up with another instrument, you're fired. <laughs> so I had, I, I got a tenor sax and learned that. And then uh, I don't know, I've always like, I've always been like kind of forced to pick up new instruments. So then I was working at a music store in LA and the phone rang this music store. And it was Dave Alvin asking me if I um, had a baritone because he wanted me to play on a blaster song. And I didn't, but I said I did. And I borrowed one from the store and that, you know, basically that phone call effectively changed my life. And I joined the blasters and then from the blasters, I joined Los Lobos and, you know, whatever, 48 years or 43 years later, here I sit. See, I was going to ask you about the baritone sax. So the first time you played baritone sax was on the blaster session. The very first time I ever played baritone saxophone was literally the the take of "I'm a Shaking" that is on the record. I had wow. never played. I had never played it before. I, you know, it's once you play tenor, it's you know, it's not like uh, you know learning trumpet. I mean, I sort of had the the basic notion of it, and I was literally, literally like again, fortune smiling. I the horn and the mouthpiece that came in the case, which I didn't have a baritone mouthpiece either, was they were both magical. I mean, the horn was a magic horn and the mouthpiece was a magic mouthpiece. And, you know, it was actually not, not that hard to play and not that hard to get, you know, it sounded like I knew what I was doing. You still have that baritone sax? I do. Yeah. I had it for, I, and I had it and the mouthpiece for many years, but both of them got kind of like the horn was a remarkable instrument. So for years, I thought it was a thirties instrument because it was like the, the serial number was from the, the late thirties. Uh, and then I, one day I, I took it, to, I had to do a insurance stuff. So I had to get it like appraised at a music store. And there's a guy here in, in Portland or when I lived in Portland and he was like, wow, this is, I got to do the research. This is a really unique horn because it had 
old hardware and new, it had like old parts and new parts. And the guy actually figured out that it was like in the late fifties, uh, it was a Buescher sex when they would get to the end of their production year and they had orders to fill, they would, they would sometimes go into their, their warehouse and dig out old bodies and to make new horns. Cause they would like, basically like they would, I guess, do their, their production year. They would have like a new model or whatever. And when they got to the end of their production year, they'd be like, Oh crap, we need to fill this order. So they would literally go into the warehouse and dig around and find old horns. And they would put new hardware on old horns. And I had that horn was one of those. Cause it was, it, it doesn't resemble any model Buescher saxophone from any era because it was a thirties horn with fifties parts. And then somebody in the sixties, did some other work to it to make it more road worthy. So it was like this bizarre Frankenstein road dog horn uh, wow. of all things. And then you're picking uh, it up way later it, than that. And then I picked it up in the what late seventies. Um, but it, it, over the years, uh, you know, I, I did not have a good case for it early on and it got the crap kicked out of it. And then it started to, I mean, it's still a fantastic horn, but it, it started to fail. Like, like it got to the point where the, the metal had been, it had been dropped and thrown and beat around it where the body, like the, there's a big bell and then it, there's an attachment to the body and, and where those, the attachment to the body and the bell had gotten so weak that it didn't take much to bend it. So it literally the horn, like sometimes I would just open the case and the horn would literally be like a banana, like it's bent Ooh. around the brace. And then I took it to this guy in New Orleans. He said, look, dude, you know, I know you love this horn. I love this horn, but it's, you know, you got to, it's got to, you got to retire. You got to get something else. It's not going to, I can't keep, you, you will not be, able, I will fix it today, but I can't promise you the next time you bring it to me, it'll be fixable. It might, it might just, you know, you got to take it out of the, out of the game. So it's, uh, it's in my storage locker now. There you go. Yeah, I know you've played a lot of different saxes and you still play the, the tenor sax and everything else, but do you think of the baritone sax as like your go-to, like that's yeah. the sound? Yeah, it is now. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know, it just kind of fits our music in a neat way. You know, like, I mean, I could some of the songs could probably play tenor, but, you know, just the way the Barry kind of fits how David plays, at least, you know, like it, it's a, it's a more seamless fit. And I, I think it, it kind of defines our sound in a weird way. You know, it's kind of, it kind of makes us us, I guess, in some respects. So, yeah, I, I, I would say I'm primarily a baritone player. Yeah, yeah, I think of a song like Riva's House, and it's just totally like right. it totally sets the the scene for that song. Right. Yeah, and even so, when I, you know, like some of the stuff, like Colossal Head, for instance, that it's a tenor with a with an octave, low octave, so it sounds. <laughs> I mean, I play tenor, make it sound like a baritone. So, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, that's my shtick. What brought you out to L.A. from Philly? So it's in Philly, and I was friends with um, this band who were, um, there's a band called the Soul Survivors who had their big hit was uh, Expressway to Your Heart. Is and they were Salt of the Salt of the Earth. Is that their album or? Oh God, it might be. I don't, to be honest with you, I don't really remember the album titles, but they're, they're big. They had a big hit in the sixties called Expressway to Your Heart. They were one of the first, if not the first white band ever signed to Gamble and Huff right. productions in Philly. So they were, uh, and there was two brothers, Richie and Charlie Ingui. And over the years, they, you know, they were a great live band, you know, didn't really get much outside of Philly, but they were great live band. They always had like, they were, they always had really great players in the band. So I went to uh, college for a minute and came home and I was in Philly 
and just kind of knocking around. I wasn't really doing much. The band that I had been in had all those guys had split gone elsewhere. And I was just like hanging around with these guys who were the backup band for the soul survivors. They just became my pals and we would jam together, but I wasn't, I was never in the soul survivors. I was never part of that band. They're just my friends. And, uh, they got a, I don't even know what made somehow or another, they all as a band, there was uh, these two brothers, Freddie and, and Stevie Beckmeyer and uh, who played guitar and bass. They got connected to a drummer in LA, a guy named Alvin Taylor, who had famously played on a bunch of Barry White's, like the, all that Barry White stuff. Mm. Amazing drummer, like, you know, well-known in the, in the R&B, soul R&B community. So the two brothers moved to LA and hooked up with Alvin and became uh, a band like they started a band and they got hired as a backup band for both Billy Preston and Greg Allman, believe it or not at the same time. And they were like, and that happened like very quickly after they had moved to LA, like they had literally showed up and then within weeks they were backing up both of these different people. And they called me one day and they said, dude, you got to come out here. This is, you know, it's like, you won't believe it. It's, it's so easy. <laughs> you don't have to deal with Philadelphia winners anymore. So, uh, Christmas 74, I moved to LA. Yeah. So I spent like New Year's 74, 75 in LA. And, um, so by the time I actually got there, Billy Preston had like some weird thing. Like he was like, he was on some, there were the police were after him for something nefarious. So he, he, that didn't happen. And then I got to one rehearsal with Greg Allman, which was amazing because I was a huge Allman Brothers fan one rehearsal and we went and that was the era when he was with Cher. So we had one rehearsal went great. And I think, Oh my God, I'm 19 years old. My life, you know, I've I've hit the pinnacle of my life. We go to, we went to one dinner at uh, this place called Dharma Greb on sunset. It was a Moroccan restaurant where you sit on the floor on these pillows. And, you know, it was just like this ridiculous, like literally like I could not have ever in my wildest imagination dreamed that I would be at a rehearsal with Greg Allman. And then later that same night, I was going to go to some beyond my wildest dreams, the Moroccan restaurant. And we're sitting there, we're having dinner and, you know, it's the, it's the mid seventies. So the drugs are flowing and, you know, things are going crazy. And, uh, I'm like, this is amazing. Like, how did I get here? This is so great. And, and like, you know, we're sitting there, we're, you know, high and, and drunk and, and we noticed like, Hey, anybody seen Greg lately? We're like, ah, whatever, you know, don't snort, smoke, smoke, smoke. Uh, Hey, you know, it's, <laughs> An hour and a half, maybe seen Craig and literally is that, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but it was like that time when he was like beset by, by paparazzi, like he couldn't go anywhere. Cause it was like him and Cher were like the, the it couple. And he literally he stuck out the back door and disappeared for two weeks. And it was like this huge tabloid, you know, the, you know, pre-internet tabloid, like Greg Allman disappeared. So he, he, he walked out on a, it was like a $2,000 bill at this restaurant that we we had to fucking pull together and he was gone and then you know like that so that you know that blew up literally the same day that it started and so there i am so no I sessions followed that for to make nothing, up for him sticking no, with zero, the bill. nothing no it was all over so you know like i had one Damn. great day and then i was there i am in la <laughs> No, really nothing happening. Welcome to LA. Welcome to LA. So I I got that out of of the way really quickly. So all the guys from the Soul Survivors, the two brothers, Alvin. um, So we started playing as a band around LA. And this is again, like would be 76, 77. And uh, it was a great band. I mean, we're, you know, really great players. It was sort of like the the music I would probably, if if I had to describe it, it would be like kind of like, 
um, the boss gags music of that era, like kind of smooth R and B ish soul right. with great guitar playing. There were three singers. There was Stevie and his brother, Freddie, who was a great singer and a guy named Ari Martin, who I had grown up with in Philly. I brought into the band. He went on to play with Zappa for a number of years. Uh, among others, you know, he's still, I still see him like he does like award shows. He'll be in the band in an award show. He's still an amazing player. So we started playing around LA. We had like this little circuit of clubs that we would play at. And uh, we got signed to uh, Casablanca Records, which is a whole other story. But, you know, and I'm, what am I, 20 at this point? So I'm 20 years old. I'm signed to a record deal. I mean, even like in Philly, I was always like intrigued by the idea of uh, what a producer does, like someone, you know, who kind of, you know, pieces together, whatever, you know, like, like I had an idea on what a producer did and I had produced a few things, a few things. Like I produced our demo of the band that, you know, some of the band guys that moved to LA and, and there was a band before that. Uh, so, you know, 20 years old, I'm in LA. I'm like, okay, finally get to see what a real producer does. So we, you know, the, we got signed to this record deal and it was a, so the label picked this guy. I can't remember his name. His name was Mike Brunt. And his claim to fame at, up to that point was, besides knowing the people at Casablanca, was he had produced some of the later Moody Blues records after their hits, like the the Moody Blues records that nobody gave a crap about because it didn't sound like Moody Blues anymore. Right. But somehow or another, that made him a producer. And like what I know, you know, as far as I know, you know, we had a charming Englishman that he was a record producer. So I had to, I got to watch what a record producer does. And the guy literally, like, he could not have made worst choice like presented with an obvious good idea and an obvious bad idea he invariably picked the wrong like a bad idea alvin was he had to do something with uh he got called away so he couldn't we're, we're about to make the record and he couldn't be there he was doing something with somebody with barry white or whatever so somewhere or another we got richie hayward from little feet to be in the band like and he was really into it he was he enjoyed the you know the music was fun it was not that dissimilar from what he was doing with little feet and we we're like i can't believe we got it. like again like get to work with one of our heroes and mike decided that he that richie was too busy for him <laughs> he didn't like this fucking poncy fucking englishman goes you know i don't i'm not i'm not i'm not enthralled by his groove i believe was the <laughs> quote and we were just like, what the fuck are you talking about, you fucking idiot? But we did not have the wherewithal to tell him to go fuck himself, which we should have. Um, so we ended up with uh, a guy who was, his name was Daoud Shah. And he was, you know, Daoud was great. He was, he had been in the, he was in the Saturday Night Live band. So that was his big claim to fame. So we replaced Richie Hayward with this guy, Daoud, who was, you know, a lovely guy and a lovely player, but by no means was he Richie Hayward. Anyway, so we made the record. This guy was a clown. Um, and I decided that, you know, like, among other things, like, you know, well, this idiot could get as paid. I forget what he got paid, but it's like this moron calls himself a record producer. I will never, no matter, I mean, I could be in a coma and I wouldn't make as many bad decisions as this guy did. So it's sort of like, what my point is that, you know, I got to see what I thought was like a pro working and I realized that I knew a hell of a lot more than he did. Certainly. It, lo it lowered the bar for you. It lowered the bar for me and made me think that oh, I, I could I could probably do this myself. You know, I, I don't you know, this is not it's not rocket science. Basically, it's just common sense, mostly. And he had none. So this now is what 77 the record comes out. Um, nothing really happened with it. It was it, it, it was a record. It was a lot of compromises like it did not capture us at our best. The band with Alvin was really remarkable. And um, Dode, 
you know, God bless him. I have no idea where he's now, but you know, he was not a powerhouse drummer and it really needed, you know, I mean, the music really needed a great drummer uh, to do it as, you know, like a lot of bands. It just like the, the music was based around, you know, like the rhythm parts and, you know, David was definitely not that guy anyway. So record comes out, nothing's happening. And by this point, you know, like I'm becoming like, I'm living in Venice and I'm like aware of this thing that's happening. I keep hearing about like this scene that's kind of developing like downtown LA and Hollywood and I'm, I'm in Venice. And so I'm just sort of like, you know, like, again, like broken radio transmissions, but I'm reading about and hearing about all this, uh, this music that's happening. I start like kind of like going and checking out bands, you know, this is what 78, 79 now. So there's 77 and there's a scene happening. And so, the band that I was in, like the, the band was called now the Beckmeyer brothers, the one that put out the record on Casablanca. And they were all like six or seven years older than I was, if not more, uh, including Diode. And, uh, they were junkies, which I didn't know about. Honestly, they, they kept it under wraps for a long time, but they were all, um, you know, I wouldn't say like junkies, but they were certainly, um, drug enthusiasts. And a lot of the drugs that they were enthused about were, was one of the drugs they were really enthused about was heroin. And I was not, really my scene. I was not, I mean, I was around it enough to know like what it was. And certainly I, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't say no all the time, but it became obvious to me that there was a, um, what should we call this a culture gap between where I was and what I wanted to do and where they were and what they were going to want to do. And, and, you know, once the record kind of came out and fell apart, like they spent most of their days getting high and I was just, you know, just, that wasn't really where I was at. So, uh, so I started playing with some of these bands in and around LA. I came like across the radar of this guy, Fast Freddy, who was a writer for a number of zines back then, but he was also a unbelievable record collector and, um, you know, really, 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 really knew his like, um, classic R and B soul. Like he, his, he would make, you know, like these cassette tapes that were just unbelievable. Yeah, like, like opening my mind to the, you know, like all this great music that I'd never been exposed to. And that's kind of where my world started, like through Fast Freddy. I got to meet the Blasters long before I, you know, started playing with them. Uh, the, the guys in Lobos were not in our, our scene, but it was like uh, James Harmon was another guy who was had a band like kind of like the Blasters. Hollywood Fats was in his band. And I sort of like just fell in with this crew of, of you know, like minded fun, exciting people. Um, the blasters would have parties at their house, like these great record parties where, you know, these guys would bring like crates of 45s and like try to out obscure each other. And, you know, these big arguments about who had like, you know, one had a green label, one had a black label, like, you know, which ones was the right one of the same, you know, just dumb record collector shit. But right. it was, for me, it was a really exciting and enthralling world that again, like I had no, none of it was was part of what i was doing or into but back to your original question about philadelphia but my mind was way open and i just jumped in you know as deep as i could possibly get and then you know i sort of did my own kind of deep dive on stuff and you know became aware of who and what lee allen was and red prysock and big j mcneely and um and that was when those guys were actually around like big j you know like i've seen big j a couple times and uh, it was sort of like an object lesson on a lot of stuff that I still carry with me to this day. And then, you know, blasters for, so I was in the blasters for a couple of years. And then one night where the blasters had matriculated up the food chain to 
we had four nights of the whiskey, which is a big deal. You know, it was a really, really, really big deal. Like the, you know, we've gone from, you know, Madame Wong's and these small clubs and playing all around town to finally like getting enough of a, of a following. And the, the, I guess the, the first record had come out and probably, you know, at that point it must've, so the second record, the one that I'm on, um, uh, had come out and it's a big deal. And so we're headlining the whiskey and we had four, four nights, four bands and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So Friday night's band was Los Lobos and uh, they obliterated the room. Like every, it was like literally, and I'm not in any way exaggerating this, like they played and then like the scene was so small in that era that literally from that moment, the moment that they hit the stage opening for the blasters for like the next month, all anybody talked about was Los Lobos. Like literally every conversation. <laughs> Did you see those like... You see those little like it was like the you know the the, the B movie uh, like the newspaper where the the newspaper headlines go. Lobos, 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 Lobos. It was like literally like that was not exaggerating it on any 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 way. Uh, and you know I we just hung out like you know it was an amazing show. We talked and they said you know hey some of these songs have sax parts. You want to come learn them? And I was like fuck yeah I do. So you know, not the next day, but, uh, not long after, uh, I went down to the rehearsal place in, uh, in East LA and that's, they happened to have a tape recorder running that day because they, they used to record their rehearsals and that's where it started. And I just learned a few songs and then I would, you know, and they played a lot back in that era. Like they played like four or five times a week it was not unusual. So I got to hang out and play with them as much as I possibly could. And, and then it became like every show. And then, you know, I was still, you know, on the road with the blasters a lot, but you know, like literally the minute my feet hit LA, I'd go find wherever the lowest levels was and just go play. It was just, it was so fun to be around them and, you know, fun to play the songs and, you know, they were just kind of figuring their shit out. So it was sort of like a lot of what I was, you know, like we all were doing the same time. Like we're all just kind of figuring our shit out. And whereas the blasters, you know, I mean, again, just, I'm not dissing them in any way, but they, they were convinced that they had already figured everything out. They didn't want to hear anything. They didn't want to hear. They certainly didn't want to hear what I had to think about anything. And, uh, you know, they would just, they were very headstrong people, all of them. So it wasn't like, um, hanging out with guys like Los Lobos who love to explore new ideas and they were wide open to anything as opposed to the culture of the blasters, which was like, don't talk to me, kid. You know, you don't know the fucking thing, you know, like leave me alone. So it was sort of a democracy versus dictatorship kind of thing. Yeah, very much so. Literally. Yeah, very much so. Like, um, and you know, the thing with the blasters was like the loudest guy won the argument. Like if you were like, if you, you were screaming louder than you would, that's, that's how you decided a winner or, and, or if there was a fist fight, which wasn't unusual either where, and then the Lobos culture would be like, yeah, let's try it. <laughs> that sounds cool. Oh yeah. I kind of like that. Hey, let's try this. Like it was never for a couple of years. I would, you know, because I was so used to the blasters culture of screaming all the time. They were like, <laughs> like we would do something and the lowest guys would be like, who are you yelling at? <laughs> like, like we don't, that's not how we do it. That's, that's not how we do things here. Just shut up. Just say what you have to say. You don't have to yell. The other guys that in Los Lobos had been together for quite a while. Did you feel like you were at home immediately or was there sort of a breaking period where you felt like the outsider before you were fully inside? Or? It was, sounds like it was fairly easy. It was very, very, they were way, they were very, very, very welcoming to me. I mean, it was, it was like a literally alien culture. I knew nothing about Latin music or Latin culture. I mean, I grew up in, you know, suburban Philadelphia for fuck's sake, you know, I'd never, you know, there was no, no exposure whatsoever, but to their enormous credit, they were 
as as welcoming and friendly as could be and then like the people around them like the guys that were sort of like they, they had like godfathers effectively like there was a guy named chewy leba who was um very 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 much a huge part of what made los lobos lobos um he was a, a professor um and a, like he sort of invented uh, the chicano studies model for the california university system so he was like a historian of of chicano culture and mexican culture and just like this very 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 much like a guru type like he was very calm like you know whenever you're around him it was just like this this amazing sense of being in, in a in a place with a highly evolved human like he went out of his way to make me feel like you know i was where i belong like he was just an amazing human being and uh gary Ibanez was the guy who where the the house that they rehearsed at he's still around gary still you know it hasn't changed a bit he's still exactly the same guy he was first day i walked into his house um and these guys were just like they had a like because they had been together for so long because they they figured out like who was real and who wasn't like everybody around the band was really solid they're just really really solid human beings solid people and they they made me feel like you know like even like musically i was on shaky ground a lot of the time that they were like they could have not been more like hey man you'll get this like you got this you know you know you this is going to work you know don't worry about it. you know you'll it was really it was a lot of behind the scenes encouragement when i wasn't sure if uh you know i was going to mm. actually you know pull it off or you know I, I would be just exposed as not really understanding what i was doing they were 100 percent behind me so there was a lot of that so it was it was a minor adjustment period but to be honest i think it was more me than them like they were happy to have me and it kind of i think it fleshed the sound out in a way that they had you know obviously there was nobody in the band could play sax so you know it added a thing that they didn't have you know even though it had been together what seven or eight years at that point you know clearly there was nothing that sounded like me that that you know could be part of that could integrate into the music and then you know at that point you know i started playing with them literally all the time and then there was literally there was a day when the blasters were going north and the lobos were going south and i said hey, i'm i'm getting in that van and they're like okay <laughs> it was like no <laughs> nobody tried to talk me out of it it was just like yeah cool all right there's no like repercussions no rivalry nothing. nothing there was no it was just like uh man okay it was like nobody nobody said a word it was like okay i guess uh, that's gonna be okay i don't know if they realized it was i was saying this is it permanently i, I don't know if i realized that but it turned out to be Summer and beer are a natural pairing. That's why Revolution Brewing has brought us Sun Crusher, a juicy, refreshing summer ale. With bright citrus, lemongrass, and floral notes, the taste is lightly sweet and crisply refreshing. The name is a nod to the Chicago Brewery's solar roof panels, which offset more than 50 tons of CO2 every year. Sun Crusher is available wherever Revolution beer is sold. Look for the can featuring Chicago's North Avenue Beach. Go to at RevBrewChicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Like how long from then to when you guys recorded How Will the Wolf Survive? And how did you end up co-producing that with T-Bone Burnett? So I had produced a couple things prior like as the blood my blasters time was ending i had produced a, a couple of uh records I, so i had actually i had actually done a few things it was i i did it i was also part of a i mean i was in a bunch of these you know different bands kind of went nowhere there was a band called the pep boys that i was in that um 
I managed to get signed to Tacoma Records, uh, which was kind of, you know, like a real record company. Uh, there was a band called EIEIO from the Midwest that I produced. Um, so I, I was not. That. Yeah. So I had done a few things and the, the Lobos guys, to their credit, you know, like they knew that that was something that I wanted to do. So I had I produced. Um, they did a couple of things. They did a, a thing for the a movie called Eating Raul that I produced. And then there was like a rockabilly compilation record that I also produced for them. So they they knew that that was my aspiration among, you know, not just playing, but I wanted to produce. So when they got signed to Slash, it was sort of like the, they, you know, to their enormous credit, they said they wanted me to produce that record. And Bob Biggs at Slash said, well, you know, how about, because, you know, I didn't really have a real track record. And he was the one that suggested uh, that I do it with T-Bone. So T-Bone and I did the first EP, which won a Grammy, kind of cool thing. And then we did uh, Will the Wolf Survive together as well. Right. Was By the Light of the Moon, was that was that T-Bone and the band then? Yeah. So by that point, all right. So we did uh, uh, Will the Wolf Survive, which was a big deal. And now this is like a couple of years later. And uh, by that point, like T-Bone's, like his profile started to to rise quite a bit so he's doing a lot of you know big time records and you know he was very good at what he did so you know he was often on his way so we start by light of the moon and we're not getting along in a weird way like he had started to like you know not i mean I'm, this is not like me telling tales out of school but t-bone had become such a quote-unquote rock star that he was known far like in the at least in la for like you know he would start like he would get signed to produce a record. He'd be there for the first couple of days and then he would disappear for long periods of time. And that's, you know, so we did, we spent a week together. We recorded five songs in the, in the week. So that was the, the first five songs of Bite of Light of the Moon. Took literally a week. Everything was fine. And then he and I got into an argument about something and it got really bad. And it got like, he was like, I can't work with this guy. And I, I was sort of, sort of the same thing. And, you know, he made a case that to the, the band guys that I was holding them back. So it was just kind of this ugly fucking thing. Uh, and then to their norms credit, they were like, well, you know, we're not firing you, but you know, this weird thing with T-Bone is happening. So we're just going to sort of separate you guys. And, and while this was happening, we got this offer to do the soundtrack for this, you know, this B movie with no stars and not much money. So they were like, um, well, why don't you do this? Like you go work on the movie and we're going to, and we're going to be in the same studio. We'll be down the hall. You go work in the movie when you need us, you know, we'll come down and work on the movie and then we'll be down the hall and doing this thing. And, you know, you can go back and forth and, but you know, like you and T-Bone in the same room, it wasn't working out. So that's what happened. So I was working on, and the movie, of course, La Bamba. Uh, so I was working on La Bamba down the hall and then they were working on, probably the moon. But again, like, you know, like in that era, like T-Bone was gone all the time and it was nobody producing it. So it went on. So that record, five songs in the week that I was there, the, the other six songs literally took a year and I'm not exaggerating. I'm not trying to indicate anything, but it took a year because T-Bone wasn't around, you know, there's nobody in charge. Things would just happen and they would go sideways. So, but in the meantime, so I'm working on this movie, you know, the movie was, you know, when we started working on it, there was literally nothing about it that gave anybody the idea that it was going to be a big hit. There was literally no, like no stars. A guy who had, I think it was his, if it wasn't his very first movie directing, it, it certainly wasn't, he hadn't done more than two or three. 
Uh, the script was a mess. They kept changing, like literally every day they would change, you know, Richie singing in the garage. No, Richie singing in a phone booth. No, Richie singing in uh, in his car. No, Richie singing in the uh, the Brooklyn Paramount. Oh, Richie's like, so like literally every day they'd be like, they would want something new uh, from, from us. And, you know, we, what do we know? So that was my job was to satisfy um, Luis Valdez and this constantly changing script. And it took them a while to cast uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. Like the whole movie, a lot of the movie had been shot and they had scenes shot. They had music ideas that Lou was, that whenever they figured out who who Richie was going to be, that they, he would lip sync. But because the script was um, was kind of in flux, we ended up doing like a bunch of different versions of the song. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, but, you know, this idea that I was sort of like relegated to the B team while they were working on this, like, you know, this this big, big time record. Well, you know, history sort of showed what happened there. So did uh, they but, come in and record like La Bamba and, you know, Come On, Let's Go, which which they'd already done on And A Time to Dance, the first DP. Were, yeah. they, were they coming over and doing that during the sessions for About the yeah. Light of the Moon? Yeah, so we are working on both at the same time in the same studio, like two different studios in the same building. So it was uh, Sunset Sound. So I was in Studio One and they were in Studio Two. So when that came out and it was a huge hit, you guys must have been like, holy crap. You know, once they finally found Richie and uh, Taylor Hackford, who was the producer of the movie, kind of stepped in at numerous occasions. But he was the one that sort of like at the end, like he's the one that made it what it is now. Like he's the one that there was a lot of extraneous stuff in the movie. There's lots and lot. There were scenes like whole sequences of the movie that got thankfully cut out, uh, including this one long dream sequence is really I think there's a little bit. I, I haven't seen the movie in a while, but I think there's a little bit of it. But there was this whole thing where Richie and Bob go to Mexico and take peyote and and Richie's dad, who he never knew, comes to him and speaks to him in a dream. And it's this very wisely got extricated from the movie. Uh, but we had to score it. It was like 20 minutes of, of score. All right. So by the moon is finished and we're sort of finishing La Bamba. And we like there was like it was June, I think, and uh, or May. And we're going to Europe for a while. So we're we're in like one of our longest tours ever. We were in Europe for like a month. And I remember I saw the very, very last cut of the whole movie at the editing bay. And I was like, wow, they, they kind of pulled this whole thing together. This is actually, it's, it's actually really, it's not a terrible, like the whole time we were working on it, it was, the movie was such a mess. It was, it was at no point up until that last day, did it actually feel like it was not going to be a debacle and just like go nowhere. But like the last, last, last day that I was there, like, huh. No, they really kind of pulled this off. It's it's not it's a decent movie. I, I remember thinking to myself, I literally thought to myself, yeah, it's a real shame no one's ever going to see this. <laughs> I swear to God, I was like, man, it's too bad. Oh well. And we go to Europe, and uh, it was like literally like I guess it had like it it, it came out like it was like right away it, it came out, and uh, it was like it it started very quickly. Like it wasn't like you know like now we're like you know it has to be discovered and you know like bubbles up through the culture and then like you know three months after you know like people talk about it then all of a sudden it's a hit. it was like it it, it kind of started very quickly and certainly the song going up like the song you know got released and i to, to, to be just to be clear i did not produce the hit that was mitchell Froome produced la bamba so that that was not me he did that that one so we're in europe and the song is like rising and rising and rising and this was the era like way before the internet 
And when phone calls, especially international phone calls were really expensive and we, you know, we weren't making shit. So it's not like we were calling home every day to check in on the progress of the movie. We were getting like, I remember we actually got um, telegrams. Like we were <laughs> like in, in Germany, we're getting telegrams saying, you know, La Bamba number 110 and going up like, Oh, okay. <laughs> like La Bamba 70 and, you know, going up like, Wow, cool. And you know, it, it just seemed like we were completely removed from this one brief aside. So so again, like no one had seen the, the cut of the movie but me. No, the guys had, you know, they hadn't seen anything. Like I was the only guy that had seen any any anything resembling the finished movie. They wanted us to see the movie because it was about to be a bunch of press stuff. So they sent, you know, like big ass reels. And we, we were in Baden-Baden, Germany. And we, we had a show and they rented out a movie theater for us to watch the movie. Now, the guys hadn't heard the soundtrack. No one had heard anything. Uh, I was, you know, I was very happy with it, but you know, they, like they hadn't, you know, it wasn't like we were mixing a song like to, to them, like they were working on the big thing down the hall, the, you know, the spider light of the moon. And I was working on this bullshit movie and we were in this movie theater and, um, movie comes up and, and the visuals are good. The sound, the, the vocals are good, but the, the music sounds like shit for some reason, like, Oh God. And I thought, all right, this, now they're going to fire me for sure. I thought my career is over. That's it. I'm going to skulk back to Philadelphia, start, you know, washing cars or something. And I had, I thought I was done when it turned out. And I was on the, and I remember I went back to my hotel room and it's the middle of the night. Like they, it was like literally a midnight showing. And I was on the phone to whoever I could reach at whatever time it was like, you know, screaming at Taylor Hackford, like, what the fuck did you do to the music? Oh, yeah, yeah. And little did we know that the European uh, track for movies, like the, they, it's a, it's a quarter of an inch different than America. So they sent an American print. So it, it went through the, the, the movie projector, but the music was like, was off. So right. like we're feeling like, you know, like, anyway, obviously the music was fine. Everything was fine. It cost me $400. I'll never forget $400 phone bill. Um, but uh, they didn't fire me. We figured out what, what was wrong. So movies going crazy. The soundtrack's going crazy. Signals going crazy. And we're still in Europe. We're not aware of any of this. We're still not, you know, we're still literally like not conscious of what's happening. So we get back to the States and we're top 40. Everybody's talking about Los Lobos. This movie's a huge hit. And we're like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like, this, what happened? And not literally none of us could believe it. And we went from literally playing like 200, 300 seat theaters within like so we got back in july and by the end of july beginning of august we were opening for you two in seventy thousand people playing stadiums wow. that's how fast the shit changed that it was literally a crazy roller coaster like the likes of which I could not even believe and again pre-internet pre you know like now everybody sees the, the mechanics behind everything like you know none of this nothing that was happening around us and to us was was in any way understandable to us. We were just literally in the middle of a, of a, you know, a race car or a jet, you know, careening <laughs> into the abyss. Uh, but, you know, still same five knuckleheads. And, you know, we, we just jumped on and, you know, rode the, the jet. And then I uh, guess what, two years later, it was kind of all over. <laughs> so you had La-, La Bamba was in your set list from now on at that point. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, happily. I mean, it was before and it was after, you know, it wasn't like it was a big deal to anybody, you know, like that had always been in our set as had come on, let's go. And other Richie songs. I mean, what those are, you know, back then they were, they were fun songs to play. So we played them. So how did that, uh, you know, affect you guys? So this whole thing, all this craziness happened. I got married. 
you know, our lives had changed clearly. So, you know, we had money for the first time ever. Uh, yeah, we weren't like rich, but you know, we had, it was enough to like, we could make decisions that weren't all about, <laughs> we, we could make decisions that it was stuff that we wanted rather than stuff that, that we could afford more or less. So I got married and I moved to Seattle cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to live in LA. I not, and again, I don't hate LA, but it just like, I, I was, I didn't want to raise, I got married with my wife and I were, wanted to start a family and we didn't want to start a family in LA. So I moved to Seattle. This would be, uh, 88, I guess. Yeah. 88, 89. And, uh, we're trying to figure out what to do to follow up, um, you know, worldwide number one. And, uh, you know, the, the folkloric side of Los Lobos was obviously where the band started before I joined. It was always like kind of, you know, a big part of it. And, you know, the one, literally the only, part of the whole La Bamba experience, the whole, you know, crazy train ride was that the world perceived us as the La Bamba band, I guess we were to a certain extent, like they, like we had become um, attached to the movie and the single and, and the whole thing in a way that, you know, we, I think very wisely sort of figured out was not going to be a sustainable thing. It wasn't like a band that has a big hit record and then like a REM that has a, whatever their first big hit was, and that becomes, you know, they define themselves by their own music. This was not our song. It was part of this movie. And um, we sort of realized that we had to sort of like clear whatever the perception was, like kind of reestate, like retake ourselves from this, whatever the, the idea in the culture was of who we were. And um, I think it was, you know, Louis was the one that sort of said, like, the world will never pay attention to a record of 200 year old Mexican folk songs more than they will now. So like, yeah, let's do it. So we went to, uh, to Lenny Walker at Warner brothers. And, <laughs> you know, after we had sold whatever, you know, 2 million records that told him that we wanted to do a record of, of Mexican folk songs. And we fully thought that we would be laughed out of the office that he would say, you know, yeah, you guys, good joke, you know, like get to work on, on another record. And he was like, yeah, you know, do it. Sounds like a good idea. And again, this was, I can't imagine any record executive, you know, maybe now like some younger guy would, but you know, like I can't imagine any other label saying, yeah, go make a record of old Mexican folk songs. Now we have to follow up on this, you know, giant record, but to his enormous credit, he did. That was Lenny. You know, he, he was always in our corner. Like he always had our back. What are you working on now, by the way? There's a record by a band here in Portland called Another Glory that I just finished. Uh, I did a movie soundtrack earlier this year with um, uh, a guy named Adam Dorn and uh, Nels Klein from Wilco, among right. others. But I'm just uh, literally today just trying to wrap up and uh, I'm mastering a record by a guy named, who calls himself Elvis O'Reilly. So just sort of clearing the decks a little bit. We're about to hit the road for about a month or for me anyway, for about a month. Are you doing busy, more producing happy, or playing these days? It's been a busy producing year, but it's about to get more about at least this month. They'll be kind of like nonstop playing. We'll be on the road till the end of the month. I saw that there was a version of rip it up that came out early this month. I have um, no idea what that is. It was, uh, as far as I could tell, it was done for uh, La Bamba, believe it or not. Really? Um, and, uh, it ended up not being part of the soundtrack. I don't think. But, you know, we're, we haven't been on letters for the better part of 25 years. So, I, I, you know, it's not like I care, really. But, yeah, it's weird. It just sort of emerged. 
Are you guys working on new music, by the way? There's really no no impetus to make a new record right now. I mean, we're gonna. I think we're gonna do a sort of like a an extreme rarities. I mean, we've done every you know we've done commemoration self commemoration records every decade. So we've done a thirtieth and a fortieth. So you know, almost everything that was releasable has been released. So we're actually going. We're gonna see what we have. I mean, we have we're doing a, a documentary about us. You know, basically. A, officially sanctioned documentary we have found some remarkable like early days stuff we have a recording of the the very first rehearsal that i was you know the, the day i walked into the rehearsal place and learned a bunch of the the nortenia songs like the whole day like we, we found that um we're, we're just trying to catalog a bunch of stuff that's never seen a light of day and, and we might depending on when, what's there we might release that as just sort of like a you know 50th anniversary but i don't there's, we're not we're not talking about making any new music probably till next year at the earliest. Are those guys writing songs or is it like oh, is it God, a function no. of not writing stuff or is it also a function of like albums are sort of no they, to get they, going now? They never never ever never ever write unless they absolutely have to. There's it's it's not one of those people you know those you know great songwriters that wake up and have a pen by the bed like those guys literally write songs like it's you know homework this late. <laughs> so no it's uh it's just you know that's the process so no there's no writing going on and there won't until we decide you know we're going to go back to the studio and then they'll slap something together the night before we go into the studio like usual and that's that's true of uh david and louis and cesar like yeah. all of them like they yeah they, they just uh you know the writing thing for them is just not they only do it when they absolutely 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 have to it's it's a very strange thing when they bring songs into the band is that process when you guys do it has that changed over the years like early on was it sort of different than it became in the later albums uh no not really you know um i mean what's changed is that uh you know in the early days dave had like a little home studio that he would do these amazing demos that would more or less usually always just you know we'd end up using the demos as the the basis for uh for the songs and um as his family grew um, his spaces disappeared. So, uh, so he, had, you know, he, he doesn't have a place in his house anymore. So the writing becomes a little, I used to look forward more than anything in the world to getting, you know, his home demos just cause they were always amazing, but he, he just can't do it anymore. So, so, yeah, so, I mean, it's been, a, to be honest with you, it's been a while since we've done anything new. I mean, we've done single new songs for, for each of the last two records that we put out, which was the Christmas record and, right. and then the covers record. But those are yeah. You had like the title track of Native Son, but that was right. Yeah, was so like, those are a little different. I mean, those are sort of you know there there might be like an idea floating around, and then him and Louis get together, and you know those have been as far as I know more or less composed in the studio or you know composed in the process of something else. But when we're talking about like a, a like an, another Los Lobos record in its entirety, it's a different thing. I mean, those take a, you know we take a lot of time, you know, in the in the preliminary of and then in the making of so things tend to go very slowly for those yeah gates of gold was 2015 so we were already yeah that was the last one right so that's what, seven years now jesus I, you know i kind of lose track you know that one you know like kind of like all of them i mean that just took a really long time you know it takes months of you know we're just not a group that can do stuff quickly like you know i mean the quickest thing we ever did was um the uh the christmas record that actually was we had like a, a deadline uh and we were able to pull that one off way quicker than usual for some reason but that 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 is by far uh, you know that's an anomaly to say the least plus you know we we're doing mostly covers so that made it a lot easier 
Right. Yeah. Even the early albums, you had sort of a couple of years between them at least. So yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it is what it is. You know, that's how it is. I mean, I, I, I just now realize it's been seven years, eight years since eight, last, yeah. that's a long time. So yeah, we're due, but not this year. It's we're not, we're not even talking about it. So it'll, it'll probably be, you know, middle of next year before we even start about start thinking about it. When you guys are making an album, is there a sense going in? Like this is sort of the concept or the 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 feel of it or is it sort of like you have songs and then it kind of comes together and you're like oh this is what this album is well i would say this the only time we ever did that like we we talked about it beforehand was town in the city and then that literally went completely a different a totally different direction than what we than what we had planned you know we that one was done in the aftermath of doing a kiko uh live uh reissue and tour so we had been toured for you know a while playing those songs and we were like, Hey, we should do another, you know, uh, we'd never do another Kiko, but we were sort of like, you know, let's try and get into that mindset. Let's try and do, see if we can, you know, do something roughly similar. And that it was like, it was a debacle, like nothing, it was <laughs> nothing worked. Uh, the ideas were like, you know, like trying to write to an idea turns out to be something we can't do either. So once we gave up on trying to do, you know, another Kiko, then, then it kind of came together, but no is the answer that we generally it's just you know you know we pick a day and then we try to give the writers time to write and inevitably they don't do a fucking thing and then <laughs> the, night, the night before we go in they're like you know like scrabbling through demos or you know old tapes trying to find something to bring in and then we just start so yeah it's uh it's i would not recommend this process to any new band or aspiring aspiring songwriter it's it's frustrating it's time consuming it's not it you know it ends up a lot of wasted time, which I, you know, these days I really have no time for, but that's how we do it. But you also have this amazing body of work. So there's that. It, it does in the end, it, it does, I guess, work in the end, but the process is, is extremely messy and less fun than it used to be, put it that way. I mean, um, you know, God knows, I know I'm, I'm, you know, I get to make music for a living, so I can't whine too much, but, um, you know, as opposed to other things I've been involved with and people I work with who, who do a little preparation at least and you know things happen in the studio of course but you know we don't do any 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 preparation whatsoever it's literally whatever happens that day is where we start so when you think of like your peak moments with los lobos are they in the studio or on Funny. stage we've had both i would say you know of late um just the way the records are made there's not a lot of those we don't play live that much anymore like the way the songs come together it's usually like a part at a time so we don't get that you know that, that feeling that rush from you know getting a great track you know it's uh, it's just different you know i think uh, a lot of that is more like you know as the songs sort of take shape and as they come together it's not like a it's less uh orgasmic epiphany and more like oh that that went a long way that came together pretty cool like you, you know it's more like a delayed gratification i guess than you know, something that happens, you know, an amazing moment in the studio. I mean, I, you know, I kind of live for those. And it's been a really long time since uh, we had one of those with the Lobos. But it's just, I'm not, that's, again, it sounds like I'm whining. I'm really not. I mean, it's just the way that the records are made oh, these yeah. days. They're just, I don't think you, you know, we, we literally piece them together and, you know, they go part by part and then that part changes and then the other part changes. And, you know, more often than not, it's just like drums and guitar will start and then we'll add the bass later. And then so things get layered on rather than, and then, you know, kind of moved around a little bit. So it's not a, it's different. What are the times where you look back on and you remember that sort of, to use your word, orgasmic, like feeling of like, wow, you know, that was just, 
that was really amazing. Well, certainly, you know, the, the Chad and Mitchell years, you know, uh, Kiko, uh, a lot of Kiko was like that. Certainly a lot of, uh, colossal head, you know, there were some great in-studio performances that I was lucky enough to be around, you know, a lot of times with certainly with, when we were working with Chad, you know, like we'd be in the studio and, and in the headphones, as you're playing it, it things would seem like they weren't quite gelling. And then you come in the control room and Chad's done something ridiculous and amazing. <laughs> it sounds like something that's never, you know, you've never heard it before in your life. So it's, there was a lot of that with that guy, you know, he's just uh, such a genius about, you know, how he goes about his craft. Uh, so there was a lot of like, holy shit, where did that come from? kind of stuff with him uh but we you know like over the years we've had other you know it's not just it wasn't just with them like we've had other moments like that certainly during um uh the stuff we did on the ride there were some incredible you know recording with uh bobby womack and mavis staples and uh richard thompson i mean there were that was that whole record was one amazing moment after another basically i mean that that one we did cut if we didn't cut it live you know just sort of like being in the room with our heroes was, you know, and them playing, you know, either our songs or, you know, just working with us. That was pretty epic. But yeah, I guess, you know, like over the, you know, last, what, 15 years now or so, it's just sort of the process has changed quite a bit. Like everybody's process has changed a little bit, you know, like we're doing it in different spaces. And, you know, it's a lot of times it's, you know, like I do a lot of my work at home now. So it's just, it's less fun just because you're not creating in the room with other people that you know you love and, and want to be with but it's still you know at the end it's it's gratifying it's just gratifying in a different way do you think there's a chance that you guys could all recognize that and say all right the next one we're just all going to be in one room together again it kind of gets back to the writing thing that you asked about it's just that the, the songs are so again not whining but the songs <laughs> are almost never written in a way that we can go and play them so, you know what I mean? They're, they're just literally pieced together. So it's not like, you know, it'd be one thing like with 80 or 90% of the people I work with where, you know, we'll know what songs we're going to record when we go into a recording studio. We just don't, Lobos doesn't do that. And it doesn't you matter know? who the songwriter writer is. It's like, it's just yeah. true. I mean, very, 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 very rarely will there be a finished song with defined parts that we then play. It's almost always just sort of, you know, here's this riff or here's this chord sequence. And then the song's kind of, get pieced together, you know, part by part. And usually it's like one or two guys laying down a part and then other people will put their parts on later. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a perfect world, that would be great. And we would, that would be wonderful. And, and, you know, maybe it could happen, but it just, it's been what, <laughs> it's almost 25 years since we did it that way. So I'm not going to hold my breath. Well, it could be your anniversary, you know, throwback yeah, project or something. Like I, that. you know, I mean, I, my, I have friends who, swear they can tell when it's done live and when it's not. And they always wish, you know, yes, I would prefer to do it live. It would be way more fun. It would go down faster. We would have more, you know, the, the thing that I miss from that era when we used to do that is just the feeling of, um, of being in the middle of something that was moving, you know, like right. being like when you're making a record, like a lot of times, you know, you have this sense of like, you know, the wind in your hair, dare I say, like, you know, like when I, back when I had hair, <laughs> you know, it'd be like, you know, the feeling that you're going somewhere every day, you go in the studio, like you're, you know, every day is you're, you're somewhere down a, a path that you haven't been on before. I truly, truly miss that feeling with, you know, my band, but, you know, at the same time, you know, we're, we, we'd been doing it for 50 years and obviously some part of this other way works. So we're just going to do it our way, I guess. Do you get that feeling when you play live 
still? Uh, on a good night, yeah, definitely. On a good night, it definitely feels like, uh, you know, there's there's a, a momentum, I guess would be the word. Like you're, you're in something that is moving in an interesting way and in a positive way. So yes, that does still happen live. It's like anybody else. It's not like, you know, you can't make it happen. You, you never know what, uh, where, how, who, you know, sometimes it's the least likely venue for that to have happened. It, it happens and then, you know, sometimes when, you know, you're, the stakes are high, we walk out, we shit the bed, you know, it's just, you never can tell. That's all for episode 94 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Steve Berlin for giving us such a vivid sense of life inside two very different bands, The Blasters and Los Lobos. You can learn more about Berlin, including all of the albums he has produced and played on, at steveberlinmusic.com. Go to loslobos.org for news and information about the band, including tour dates. Los Lobos often is on the road, and you can catch them, among other places, July 27th at Maryland Hall in Annapolis, Maryland, July 30th at the Newport Folk Festival in Newport, Rhode Island, August 3rd at the Music Box Supper Club in Cleveland, Ohio, and the August 19th Benefit Concert in celebration of Lynn Bramer at Metro in Chicago. Oh, and be sure to explore Los Lobos' catalog all the way up to their 2021 Grammy-winning album, Native Sons, produced by Steve Berlin. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who makes sure you won't worry, baby. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter and Instagram, at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well, at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events. We're getting close to my July 31st onstage Carol Pop conversation with actor-singer-director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to evansonspace.com for tickets. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for part two of this Carol Pop conversation with Steve Berlin. Thanks.